humans. Good Sunday afternoon to you. How are you all on this bright and sunny day in Minnesota? Um, welcome to Hidden Edges Radio on AM 950. This is your host, Ellie Krug. We have a live show. I am just thrilled to be able to say that it is live because regular listeners, you know that I like live shows immensely. Um, We've got uh, a couple of great guests uh, with, um, to talk about the subject of opioid abuse, and uh, you're going to be able to call in to us at 952-946-6205. We would love to hear from you if your life has been affected by opioid addiction directly or indirectly. So I'm, uh, I am sitting here doing a little fidget- fidgeting, so bear with me. Um, so with me in the, in the uh, room, we have a couple of wonderful guests. I have with me uh, Claire uh, Wilson, who is the Assistant Commissioner for the Community Supports Administration through the Department of Human Services. Her work includes dealing with public education as it relates to opioid addiction, and we have a, a, par- a horrible problem here in, the, in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities, but in greater Minnesota, about opioid addiction. So, uh, Assistant Commissioner Wilson, Claire, welcome to Hidden Edges Radio. Thanks so much. And we also have Dr. Anthony Stately, um, who is from uh, the who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Native American Community Clinic in Minneapolis. He holds a degree, a PhD in clinical psychology. Dr. Stately, welcome to Hidden Edges Radio. Thank you so much. We are thrilled to have you here, and. Um, Opioid addiction is a topic that is near and dear to uh, my heart. As I explained to you before uh, the show went on, I've lost a uh, 19-year-old nephew to opioid addiction, and I have another nephew who is um, also um, a currently a her- an on-again, off-again heroin user. Um, both of those nephews came from an, an upper-class white family, I might add, as well. And so, um, so it's, this is a topic that's near and dear to us uh, in my family, and I know that it's a topic near and dear to uh, Minnesotans across the, the state. And for those of you who are listening right now, if you want, please give us a call in if your life or the life of someone you have loved has been affected by op- opioid addiction. Give us a call at 952-946-6205. And so, um, Claire and uh, Dr. Stately... Can you summarize to us what is the current state of, of the, the emergency, if that's the right word, I think it is, of the opioid epidemic in Minnesota? Sure. Thanks so much for having us on, and thanks uh, in particular for focusing on this. You know, right now what we're seeing is it is a crisis, and it has had a far-reaching and devastating impact across Minnesota. I think it is well worth noting and and has to be continually that in addition to the impact that it's having, of course, on white communities, we have the largest rate of disparities in the nation in terms of opioid overdose deaths um, impacting the African-American community, the American Indian community, our LGBTQ communities. And so there really, it is a crisis. And it has had a devastating impact both in uh, the urban areas and also, as you mentioned at the top there, Ellie, in our uh, rural and uh, greater Minnesota areas as well. So, and uh, Dr. Stately, I mean, before I've been involved in doing some research as it relates to opioid addiction and led mm-hmm. some uh, uh, focus groups on it, and particularly as it related to the LGBTQ community. My, as I got into it, I was surprised about some of the ideology, some of the things that are causing people to use opioids. What, what are you finding and what can you tell us? Well, I think the, the state of the crisis that we have now really has its roots originally in probably um, sort of the unchecked um, use of prescription medication and sort of the, you know, the, the big, big pharma sort of push to... to um, to uh, um, incentivize people to use oxycodones and the other kinds of um, right. um, uh, opioid-based uh, pain killers, um, 
And then uh, there's also lots of evidence um, emerging in the more recent sort of news that suggests that the big pharma companies um, that have sort of taken that on as their strategy, that they um, knowingly and probably, you know, um, intentionally sort of um, diminish the um, the addictive quality of that particular sort of medication. And so as a result, what you end up having is you have a lot of doctors who are incentivized to give um, very addictive pain medication to, um, to individuals um, seeking medical assistance or medical help um, for um, all kinds of forms of pain. You also had, I think, concomitantly at the same time, you had a lot of... Um, uh, we didn't have a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding broadly in terms of research and our ability to understand pain and understand like, you know, what's the best way to approach that and treat that. And so you have this, these two things happening at the same time. And what ends up happening is you have a significant amount of people across the nation and, um, and in our communities um, becoming addicted qu very quickly to a very, very powerful um, chemical, chemical agent that rapidly they, um, they gain um, little or any control over, right? Um, so I think that's pretty much where the foundation um, okay. started. So big pharma pushed it and became more available. And we've got doctors that, um, through ignorance, yes. um, lack of education, and perhaps some incentivizing on the part of big pharma, started sure. prescribing these drugs. Um, but that kind of um, protocol we can sort of deal with. I mean, we can tell the doctors to cut back on their prescriptions. We can, sure. we can um, substitute uh, different drugs um, for pain. But the epidemic continues. I mean, it's just getting sure. worse. Well, absolutely, and I think that it's important to note that that the, that is true. We can um, we can um, come up with new strategies, and we actually have done uh, a lot. I mean, Claire could probably speak to this from the state's perspective on um, what the state has done with the um, the um, the pharmaceutical registry and those kinds of things, and making sure that. Um, uh, folks are tracking people who are getting multiple prescriptions and those kinds of things. We have really done a really good job on that um, in terms of a system. The challenge is that um, what ends up happening in these kinds of situations, how things become epidemic-wide, right? You had, um, there's a great book that was put out a couple of years ago called Dreamland, and I can't remember the name of the individual who wrote it. He probably would be really upset that I forgot his name. <laughs> but it was a really, really interesting book. And what that book talk, talks about is, you know, um, this, these two things that happened, this thing that happened in this sort of like the legitimate quote unquote world of like big pharma and medicine and those other things. And then at the same time as, um, jurisdictions, the DEA and a number of other people were kind of pulling back and limiting the ability for people to just to give out all kinds of scripts, right? Um, uh, prescription monitoring was a really big part of that. Right. Minnesota got on board very quickly. I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps when you look at different jurisdictions across the United States, we don't have as high rates overall in terms of the population. Um, as other states or other jurisdictions because of that um, particular um, strategy. However, um, at the same time as the, the access to pills and prescription medication was tightening up, you also had the drug cartels releasing black tar heroin into communities um, at about the same time. So what happens to people who are addicted to something like an opiate um, that they used to get through sort of a legal means of like getting a prescription or those kinds of things, or maybe they're pilfering out of, out of grandma's cupboard and those kinds of things. But as soon as that faucet gets turned off, they still have the addiction and they still have the need, you know, the biological chemical need. Um, uh, uh, you know, addiction is a really, really complex right. thing to understand. It's partly biological, partly psychological, and a few other things. But when you create this, you turn the faucet off and you don't attend to the issue of the person's problem, they're going to seek other areas to get that need met, right? And so at the same time that heroin was making it into our communities, it was cheaper to get than prescriptions. And, you know, people who need to get 
um, their quote-unquote medicine or their fix, they're going to go to the place where they can get it most easily and accessibly. Okay. Um, we're going to take a break in a couple of uh, seconds here, but listeners, we've been speaking with uh, uh, Claire Wilson from the Department of Human Services and Dr. Anthony Stately uh, with uh, the Native American Community Clinic in Minneapolis about opioid addiction. We'd love to have some callers at 952-946-6205. Um, call in and let us know if your, your life or the life of someone that you love has been affected by opioid addiction. Uh, Claire, let's just throw out a couple of really quick statistics before we have to make, take our break. I've got here, I think from your website or somewhere else, that last year in uh, excuse me, in 2016, for the last complete statistics, that nearly 400 people, exactly 395 people, died from opioid-involved overdoses here in Minnesota. Is that right? That's correct, and that's up 12 percent from 2015. Well, and you know what? I compared that to uh, traffic accident deaths in uh, in 2017, and there were only 200, 348 of those deaths. So we've got more people dying from opioid addiction than we do from car accidents. That's right. All right, we've been speaking with folks about opioid addiction on Hidden Edges Radio. Um, please give us a call at 952-946-6205. You are listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. That's why the voice doesn't match the name. When we come back, um, we'll talk more about this epidemic in Minnesota. Thank you. Mishad Cooley Erickson, a mechanical and electrical consulting engineering firm in Minneapolis, supports inclusivity by designing spaces for all user groups, honoring inclusivity and respect. These spaces include gender-neutral family restrooms and nursing mothers' rooms. For example, Mishad Cooley Erickson has designed lactation rooms for traveling mothers at the MSP International Airport. Designing these spaces has changed the expectations of similar facilities in airports around the country. Mishad Cooley Erickson designed safe and comfortable environments for occupants who are their number one priority. Hi, this is Gregory Rich from Habitation Furnishing and Design, and I'd like you to tune in to a new program, Drink in the Style. Sundays at 5 p.m., Drink in the Style is going to be a one-hour conversation about interior design and aesthetics, all while enjoying a cocktail created by a local mixologist. Drink in the Style, Sundays at 5 p.m., brought to you by Habitation Furnishing and Design. may seem odd to be thinking about air conditioners in Minnesota in March, but it is better than waiting until the middle of July when you can fry a steak on your sidewalk. Fortunately, Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is offering $1,000 or more off high-efficiency air conditioners until March 30th. Save money and spend the summer in cool and relaxing comfort. Visit standardheating.com for details and come visit us at the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, the comfort you deserve. Hey, it's Mike McEntee, and I have a show on AM 950 Monday through Friday from 4 to 5 o'clock. It's a free-form hour of news, interviews, and your phone calls. We don't do 10-second sound bites and yelling and screaming about issues. That may make for great entertainment, but it really doesn't help to solve the real problems we face. We try to get the whole story and have an intelligent discussion. We also occasionally have a little fun. Listen in from 4 to 5 o'clock on AM 950 Radio. With spring, it's car wash season. Thank goodness for the Luther Advantage program from Rudy Luther Toyota. Not only do I save 10 cents off per gallon of gas at Holiday Station stores, but I also get big discounts on car washes. And with free two years of maintenance with every new Toyota purchased, I can get my oil change and spring service done with the best service and maintenance department at Rudy Luther Toyota. Clear your spring checklist with great service from Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years. Celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Oh, 
And we are back on AM 950, Hidden Edges Radio. Uh, this is your host, Ellie Krug. I've been speaking with Claire Wilson, who is the uh, Assistant Commissioner for Community Supports Administration with the Department of Human Self, Human Services, excuse me, and Dr. Anthony Stately, who is um, the CEO, the Chief Executive Officer of the Native American Community Clinic in Minneapolis. Claire, we went before we took our break. We were starting to talk about some statistics. I will slow down. Thank you. Some statistics as it relates to opioid addiction here in Minnesota. Can you give us some more information to tell us how bad this epidemic is? Because um, I think people think it's only a a metro problem and that it doesn't uh, go out into uh, the greater Minnesota. That's right. And we just launched a public awareness campaign that, you know, the theme of which is this is all of us, because it is true that it's impacting us across populations. But in particular, as I noted, um, really having a disparate impact on our communities of color, American Indian populations, LGBTQ, and, um, and pregnant and parenting women. So for the American Indian population right now in Minnesota, we know that it is six times more likely for someone to die from an opioid overdose than from um, the rest of the pop from the white population, LGBTQ youth and adults are um, almost 12% more likely to use or abuse prescription drugs. African Americans in Minnesota make up about 5% of the population, but 10% of the treatment population for um, opioid use disorder. So, and then, you know, we talked about the overall overdose uh, death rates, but we did have a 12% increase since 2015, 186 of those deaths were from prescribed opioids. And then um, there were 96 synthetic opioid-involved deaths, so things like fentanyl, which, um, of course, was the cause of Prince's death. And so we heard a lot about that in the media. Wow. Well, uh, listeners, if you want, uh, please give us a call. It's your opportunity to actually ask some very um, direct questions to people in the know. And if your life has been affected by opioid addiction directly or indirectly, a loved one, um, please give us a call at 952-946-6205. Dr. Stately, could you maybe help educate us about what is an opioid and what, I mean, it's just one, it's a word that encompasses a lot of different kinds of drugs, yes? Yes. <clears throat> so opiates is really just a... Um a, a name for several kinds of different drugs that are, um, it's like a name for a class of drugs, actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, what is interesting about it is so that you have um, prescription medication, which is um, originally designed to um, anesthetize pain, right? And that's a broad sort of like um, <clears throat> category. But um, drugs such as... Um, uh, Oxycodone, um, Vicodin. Um, I'm not sure. Does um, I'm not sure if um, codone uh, or codeine. I think is also a part of that um, uh, that family of drugs. Those were um, you know created and and uh, and, and um, uh, modified or genetically created to respond to the pain receptors in your brain, so that you could your brain would allow you to not feel pain for a whole range of things. Um, there's also naturally occurring um, opiates um, um, that happen um, in in the world. And actually, quite frankly, your body actually creates um, a very simple form of of um, of a pain uh, medication or an opioid type um, uh, drug or um, chemical in your body. An example would be something like, you know, if you slammed your finger in the car door, you know, which, you know, some of us have done before, right? <laughs> right, right. And, <laughs> and, you, uh, and, you, and you automatically sort of have this, like, you have this rush of pain, right? The, you also will notice that probably at some point in time, um, your, your body has a, a rush of activity chemically happening within your brain and within your body that helps you to sort of manage that pain, Um Sometimes you might have something like that happen and then you don't even feel it for like, you know, the first 10 or 15 minutes and then you have 
after that rush of activity, of chemical right. activity in your brain, then you feel it, right? That throbbing yep. and all those other things. So your your brain actually, your body actually produces some of this inside of itself. So, um, you know, it's we have pain receptors in our brain that respond to things like the chemical compounds that are um, created inside pharmaceuticals. And then, of course, we have heroin, and we have a number of other kinds of things that are also natural, naturally found in the natural environment that are used for pain ma- management. All right, so we're talking about a lot of different drugs and a lot of different things that people resort to as ways to manage pain. Uh, listeners, we'd love to hear from you at 952-946-6205. The question that I have, particularly from my work with focus groups, is... Um, what surprised me was hearing not about a lot of people in pain, mm-hmm. but a lot of people self-medicating to run away and to cope with anxiety, mm-hmm. depression. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I, th- I, that I found that blew me away so much was shame. Mm-hmm. Shame yeah. is the underlying ideology coming from trauma and shame sure. then feeding on itself because... We, you know, in society, part of the work that I do in the world is I train about human inclusivity mm-hmm. and we group and label humans. Sure. And on the yeah. lowest end of that grouping, on just about the lowest of the low, are quote unquote drug addicts. Okay? Because society is not very understanding or forgiving of people who are quote unquote drug addicts. Mm-hmm. Can either of you talk about the, this, this inner relationship between how badly we feel about ourselves as humans and how it shows up in addictions? Sure, I can. I mean, I, that, that's a radio show for four hours. I understand that. But. <laughs> yeah, we'll just say, briefly well. touch on generational trauma and addiction and just yeah. a quick. Um, no, you're right. And there is, you know, that is part of the reason why we frequently say, you know, we are fighting not just a drug in this crisis, but a disease. And the disease of addiction does stem um, from multiple places, as Dr. Stately was um, saying before. And certainly, particularly within certain communities, there is addressing the deep, um, the deep systemic emotions and um, and societal pressures that come from generational trauma, isolation, where we are right now in terms of coping with um, increasing anxiety um, about the state of the world and stigma. So we have seen, and that is one reason why the state's aggressive efforts to address the crisis have of course, focused on strategies to address prescription monitoring and address prescribing and address other ways of pain, um, other ways of coping with pain, but have also really focused on strengthening the continuum of care for addiction services in the state of Minnesota. Because really, it's getting upstream. It's about prevention. It's about awareness of addiction as a disease. It's about treatment options, which we know work when people are able to access um, treatment and post-treatment and recovery options. They are um, able to achieve recovery. And so really putting this into the framework of treating this disease as we do all other healthcare related. All right. And we're going to need to take a break. But when I come back, I want to talk more about this relationship between trauma and shame and how opioid addiction arises. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Hidden Edges Radio. We've been speaking with Claire Wilson from the Department of Human Services and Dr. Anthony Stately from the Native American Community Clinic. When we come back, we'll talk more about opioids. Call us at 952-946-6205. We would love to hear from you. Rare chance to talk to professionals. Bye. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Most Tax Service, family-owned and operated since 1971, providing a full spectrum of tax preparation and associated services. Think about it. Why would you take your most important financial information to a franchise operation with a cheap basic package that goes up dramatically once you're in the door? You can find out all you need to know about Moe's by visiting www.moestax.com. 
That's mohstax.com. Or call them at 612-721-2026. Don't be a blockhead. Go to the professionals at Moe's Tax Service. Northeast Minneapolis is known for its creativity, and you'll know exactly why when you eat at Hazel's Northeast. Their creatively prepared comfort food will have you coming back week after week. Breakfasts like biscuits and gravy, granola pancakes, and brisket hash. For lunch, homemade soup, and one of the best Rubens in town. And don't miss the daily risotto or Chef Ali's ever-changing dinner specials. Come on in. Bring the whole family. Hazel's Northeast delivers real good food. Family-owned at 29th and Johnson in Minneapolis. Crazy about pets? We are too. The Pet Connection Show is a great venue for fun, informative, and creative conversations about pets. Join myself, Kathy Menard, and Dr. Nicole Parole, along with guests who are leaders in the dynamic and growing pet industry, as we discuss healthcare, relationships, behaviors, and even political issues as they relate to our pets. So come, sit, stay for the Pet Connection Show, Sundays 11 a.m. to noon on AM 950 Radio, the progressive voice of Minnesota. The Spring St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, will be running April 27th, 28th, and 29th. This is a must-do experience that you will love. Over the weekend, you'll have the chance to explore a wide variety of art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Hosting over 350 artists, up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. The Art Crawl sprawls over 34 locations. Join the Art Crawl and discover outstanding art for you to own. When you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community with free transit passes. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the Art Crawl. Be sure to get details at thesaintpaulartcrawl.org. That's thesaintpaulartcrawl.org. With your AM950 weather, I'm Sam Turnberg. Today will be mostly sunny with a high near 45, and tonight we'll have a 40% chance of snow with a low around 30. Tomorrow we'll see a high near 42 with freezing rain likely, and Tuesday will be partly sunny with a high near 45. The Eat Local Minnesota Restaurant of the Week is Hazel's Northeast. Their dishes made from scratch are rooted in over 50 years of family tradition that are healthy, hearty, and beautifully served. Come visit them at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis, and for more information, see eatlocalminnesota.com. And we are back on Hidden Edges Radio. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, your host of this esteemed show. I've been interviewing and speaking with Claire Wilson, who is the Assistant Commissioner for the Community Supports Administration for the Department of Human Services. Boy, that's a lot on a business card. And Dr. Anthony Stately, who is uh, with the Chief Executive Officer with North America, the North um, North Native American Community Clinic. Sorry about that, Dr. Stately. I am just trying to get my sea legs. I have not been back. I haven't been on the radio for more than a week, and you get rusty. So before we took our break, Dr. Stately, we were um, talking about the relationship between trauma and anxiety and depression and shame. And um, I, I, Claire uh, used the phrase interge- or intergenerational or generational trauma. I wonder if you could explain what generational trauma is as well as trauma, because I think that there's a general impression out there for a lot of people that trauma is only a physical related thing, that you get slapped on the hand, you've suffered trauma, but trauma can be far more than that. It can be something you witness or hear, Right. Sure. So um, trauma in a nutshell is basically, um, you know, whenever we as human beings experience um, an adverse experience, you know, and and trauma is also actually quite frankly very subjective, right? You could have um, 100 people witness the same experience and same event, and you'd have a really broad response to that event. Um, you know, a good portion of them would have a really adverse experience. Some people, depending on sort of like, you know, a number of internal um, resources that they have as well as external resources, if they have lots of social support and they have all, you know, they're really well connected and they have other kinds of resources, they might have a different kind of a response. And then you'd have some people who are like, well, you know, that was a ba- really bad thing, you know, want to go for coffee kind of thing. The point is, is that, um, you know, people respond differently. And trauma 
is partly the thing that happens to you, the events that happen to you, and then the effect, the after effect, the tra trauma response is what you do about that or, you know, what your response is to the events that happen to you. Okay, and some people can respond in a positive way and other people sure, respond in sure. what would be a negative way. Yeah, and what we know about um, uh, this thing called intergenerational trauma or generational trauma or some people call historical trauma it's a really much you know it's kind of like a broad category but in a nutshell basically historical trauma or gen intergenerational trauma is this idea that um, individuals are, are people who are memberships of groups who have experienced pervasive traumatic events um, the community I work for, which is the Native American community, of which I actually am a member of as well. So I'm an enrolled uh, member of the United Tribe, and then I was born and raised in um, um, here in Minnesota, and my mother and father were Ojibwe. So as a result of kind of, you know, multiple generational sort of experiences that this group of individuals have experienced, um, both in terms of governmental policies, but actually practices as well and those kinds of things. Sure, genocide. Yeah, that create, you know, not just pain for the pain and, um, and um, traumatic experiences for the individual, but also the entire group, that those are kinds of things that um, have um, transformative and um, significant upheaval within the group itself in terms of its ability to sort of respond in a healthy manner to the traumatic events that they experience. And we know that this is actually a, um, a phenomenon that isn't just solely something that impacts Native communities, impacts um, indigenous communities all over the world and impacts other kinds of communities as well, GLBT communities, African-American yep. communities, a number of other groups. And I think what's really important uh, about that is to understand that there's actually emerging scientific evidence that suggests that the kinds of things that happen to people, individuals or groups, where they have pervasive, um, um, ongoing um, stress or traumatic um, events within their lives, that it actually changes their biological structure um, such that they can pass on the predisposition to to have um, a poor sort of um, psychological, emotional, and um, uh, uh, spiritual response to the ability to sort of um, work through traumatic experiences when they have those. So they become sensitized. They become sensitized. Through yeah. biology and then passed on to other generations. Yes. Wow. Well, but that also helps to explain why we have such an epidemic as it relates sure. for some of our different groups. Sure. Yeah, and I think part of that is is to understand, like you know, um, I, I think one of the things I can say really quickly is like what I'm seeing and what I'm witnessing, both um, phenomenologically in the Native community in terms of my own personal experience. Not that I mean, not that I'm using opiates, or but I, I have family members, of course, who are part of this community. And in my role as the CEO at the Native American Community Center and seeing this in, within my lobby and the patients that come into the clinic and talking to my providers, my um, chief medical officer, Dr. Kari Rabi, she's you know done a lot of leadership in this area around in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities around um, this work. But one of the things that I'm seeing is, um, you know, um, in our community, people aren't starting with prescriptions, right? Um, and actually the opiate epidemic is hitting us the hardest in the age category right now in of like 20 to 20 to 34. Okay, this so is in the Native started, American yeah. community. Yep. So people are starting very young, they're starting out early, and actually what we're seeing is a significant number, many, many of them are actually starting now with going straight to heroin. They, they're not using the pills first and then jumping to heroin, which we were seeing a few years ago. They're starting with heroin now, mostly because it's really accessible. And that becomes really challenging and traumatic. I mean, challenging for us because, um, you know, our young people, as a, as, a, as a population, we're a young group, right? The majority of our population is kind of within that bandwidth of, of where we're seeing the majority of those overdoses as well. And so... Um, we have this group of this population that is really, really, really threatened because of the conditions that we're on, we're living under right now. And so part of that is is that, you know, imagine if you will, you are these people's parents or their grandparents, or you're their ch or even worse, you're their children, right? And we are losing members of our community at rates that are far out 
wing, the general population. These are this is the kind of psychological and spiritual experience that um, many of us remember um, from generations ago. What it meant to like lose entire groups of membership yep. within our community. So in some and, ways, it's trauma on top of trauma. Exactly. Exactly. And um, and and I I cannot get away from the facts, at least based on what I um, saw as I got involved in learning about opioid addiction, the, the relationship about how people with shame and how shame seems to feed so much. I mean, Claire, do you, are you aware of any studies where shame was the focus as to the question of ideology about opioid addiction? You know, I can't really quote anything off the top from, you know, a study that particularly focused on shame itself, though I can say sort of lifting up what Dr. Stately was already um, naming is that we do see, particularly in some of our student surveys and talking to um, gay, transgendered students of color, that they're really naming isolation and shame as places from which, as we have said, they are starting to you know, for lack of a better word, self-medicate. And I would say on a statewide level, when you look at our data in terms of what people are being admitted to treatment for, we're actually seeing, well, alcohol has always been and remains the number one drug for treatment. So I just feel like that's something to name. Um, Right now in the state, meth is the second, Mm -hmm. um, followed by opioids. So while we are certainly in the midst of a crisis, we are still in the midst of a... um, conflict as a state in terms of dealing with addiction and really making sure that we are aggressively putting our resources towards strengthening that continuum of care. But in this specific context, making sure that those resources are targeted to culturally appropriate interventions and culturally appropriate and relevant treatment. So give me an example of what would be a culturally relevant treatment as it would relate to the Native American community or, say, the black community or the LGBTQ community? Well, you know, that that question is a little bit harder to answer than you would imagine because Native Americans, quote-unquote, um, is not a... Um, is not a uniform group. Right. There are 567 right. tribes in the United States, all with unique characteristics that are cultural and so forth. In the state of Minnesota, there are 11 tribes, seven Ojibwe um, tribal communities and um, four Dakota communities. And all of those communities have some unique qualities that are culturally and historically unique to them. And so trying to say, like, well, here's the several silver bullet that's going to work for every single Native American in the state of Minnesota is really going to be challenging. But generally, I think one of the things that we sort of try to do or we try to sort of um, um, move towards is um, really um, making an effort to listen to the voices of the community know that the community probably knows a lot more about their own experience than we do necessarily as outsiders who work with them, right? So anything that we do has to be done in partnership with them. and Rather than to say, we know better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and to know that people, I, I think fundamentally also we have to remember that people, you know, nobody, nobody who is born comes here with the intention as a human being of becoming an addict, right? There's something that happens within this interaction as human beings between us and our family, us and our community, the the environment, and a number of other things, right, that create the the catalyst or the opportunity for us to sort of move towards those those, um, those behaviors or those, um, you know, the, the, the need to sort of seek relief for the emotional, psychological, and spiritual pain that we experience, right? One of the things I loved that um, Ed Ellinger, the former Minnesota Health Commissioner, said was he described the, uh, uh, the opiate crisis and some of the other things that we're struggling with, uh, broadly, diseases of despair, right? You can call it shame, you can call it despair, whatever. It just doesn't feel good as a human being to be in that state, right? So we're going to seek some relief from that or some way to sort of get out of that feeling, right? And if we don't have other opportunities, other ways to do that, what we might do is we might reach for the thing that's the most immediate and the most easily to acquire. 
And in some communities, and for some people, those things are drugs and alcohol and a number of other things. But um, Ed Ellinger said diseases of despair like drugs, alcohol, and suicide are brought on in part by a lack of hope, a lack of opportunity, and a lack of paths out of poverty. And when you think about, you know, when I think about the American Indian community that I've been a member of and that I have served for over 25 years of my life, and um, the GLBG community, which I also happen to be a gay man, I can't think of any two other communities that are more disenfranchised and who have any more reason to feel despair um, in today's day and age. Well, <laughs> on that note, we're going to take a break again. Um, we'd love to have you call in at 952-946-6205. If you've had a family member or yourself who've been affected by opioid addiction, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, with Hidden Edges Radio. And when we come back, we'll uh, speak further with Claire Wilson from the Department of Human Services and Anthony Stately uh, from the Native American Community Clinic in Minneapolis. Thank you. Hello, this is Ellen Krug from Hidden Edges Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I'm standing in front of audiences training about diversity and inclusion and on how to be welcoming to others who are different from us. More than ever, employers and organizations need professional diversity and inclusion training. I can offer that training through my company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I'd love to make your workplace or organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Trappers use baited snares to choke animals to death. They're cheap and easy. Snares are banned in 20 states. Snares can't discriminate between wild animals and our pets. Your dog could die silently in a snare just yards away. Most Minnesotans oppose trapping, and our leaders cringe at the slightest mention of it, and yet it continues. Let's ban snaring and leave a legacy Minnesota can be proud of. Please contact the governor and your lawmakers. Do it now, today. Together we can ban the snare. Learn more at StandAgainstSnaring.com. Unbeatable appliance savings, then save more at Warner Stellion's free tax rebate event. Save hundreds on the appliances you want. Warner Stellion has them all at guaranteed low prices. Get exclusive additional savings with our free tax rebate event. Then save even more with free local delivery, basic installation, and appliance recycling, all done by our trusted specialists. These exclusive offers are only available for a very limited time and only at Minnesota's appliance specialists. Warner Stellion. Mishad Cooley Erickson, a mechanical and electrical consulting engineering firm in Minneapolis, supports inclusivity by designing spaces for all user groups, honoring inclusivity and respect. These spaces include gender-neutral family restrooms and nursing mothers' rooms. For example, Mishad Cooley Erickson has designed lactation rooms for traveling mothers at the MSP International Airport. Designing these spaces has changed the expectations of similar facilities in airports around the country. Mishad Cooley Erickson designed safe and comfortable environments for occupants who are their number one priority. And we are back. This is Ellie Krug with Hidden Edges Radio. We've been talking about opioid addiction. And I've been speaking with uh, Claire Wilson uh, from the Department of Human Services and Dr. Anthony Stately from the Native American Community Clinic in Minneapolis. Claire, what is the Department of Human Services doing? What kind of, uh, you've talked earlier in the show about a public education campaign. Can you bring us up to date on what the state is doing to deal with this horrible epidemic of opioids? 
Absolutely. The state's taking a multi-pronged approach. Um, Last year, the state legislature and the governor worked together to pass a significant reform of our substance use disorder treatment system, and that includes really encouraging more direct and timely access to treatment and enabling people with lived experience to act as recovery coaches and peers and supports within um, the treatment uh, world because we know that having people on that journey with you who have that lived experience can really help people achieve and maintain their recovery. The state also received over $10 million from the federal government to address the opioid crisis. So we have been targeting that to um, a public awareness campaign, which I mentioned, um, but also really targeting to the different communities that we've also already mentioned who are impacted and assuring that we are encouraging um, direct access to medication-assisted therapies, access for pregnant and parenting moms, where we also see a disparate impact, um, and really assuring that people are accessing treatment in a timely manner, because we know that when people enter treatment, they have a, you know a higher potential for seeing improvement, not just in treating their disease, but in all the ongoing supports that are required to live a whole life, so employment and um, housing and diverting, hopefully, from any engagement with the justice system, which is not something that we've talked a lot about, but which we know there's also um, a lot of um, justice-involved communities who are there because of um, engagement with drugs, and there should be different ways to address that. So, and right now, the governor has a proposal in front of the legislature that would invest $12 million a year in um lifting up these efforts and strengthening them. And that $12 million would be um, generated through a fee that would be um, put upon the pharmaceutical companies in terms of the uh, opioids that they are producing. So we are encouraging the legislature to look very seriously at that and make the investments that are necessary to address the crisis. And finally, we just just this week launched the Know the Dangers website. That's knowthedangers.com. And this is a comprehensive resource that has um, resources for families, resources for individuals, and, again, targets specific populations and has different ways that communities can become engaged in fighting both this drug and this disease. So, and, Doc, thank you for that. So it's knowthedangers.com that anyone could go to and get more information about the opioid addiction and then some resources on how to deal with it, right? All right, so, Dr. Stately, um, let's say that um, you're a family member, a, a parent, or a sibling of somebody who's abusing opioids, Mm -hmm. what can you do? I mean, you know, it is a, um, I know from personal experience in my family, it is a very frustrating experience to be a relative of someone in that situation. So what can a family member or someone who loves someone else who's addicted do? Sure. Um, I think that's a great question. You know, I think that it's also really important to acknowledge that addiction isn't just the something that impacts the individual who's using. Addiction impacts um, the family, it impacts the community, impacts, you know, children, a number of other things. Um, and so um, that's one of the reasons why it's really important to take a multi-strategic approach to addressing it. What you can do as a family member, if you have somebody that you love who is you um, abusing opiates or heroin, is um, something I think that's really important is to avail yourself of the opportunity to be um, trained in how to utilize Narcan to revive somebody who is um, potentially um, overdosed within your within your home. Um, Narcan is something that is very readily available in lots of areas. I think you can get prescri- you can get Narcan prescribed to you now and filled um, at a pharmacy. Many pharmacies are actually starting to to um, to hand out Narcan along with their um, opiate prescriptions for people who are who have a who have a medication that's um, you know a pain reliever. Um, I believe Walmart is doing that now. I believe also um, Walgreens and a few other. Wow! Uh, wow! Um, you know, <clears throat> Blue Cross Blue Shield just released an article about talking about how they're going to actually, you know, um, take a much more aggressive approach to to ensuring that um, families that get these prescriptions can ha- also have access to life saving that life saving drug, Narcan, which reverses the effect of. Uh, the opiate um, on an individual who has taken too much or who is overdosed. Right, but you have to have somebody who's not under the influence of the opioid to administer the Narcan, right? Well, uh, yeah, um, you know, um, 
What we're seeing in our clinic actually is um, what we started doing. We started doing safer use services primarily just to our patients who are coming in. But And this is actually something also that um, um, is being distributed in through lots of formal and informal um, structures within communities. Um, C. Brumler and a number of other uh, organizations have been just, you know, getting Narcan out on the streets because... right. It, primarily with the intent to stop people from overdosing and dying. I think the I think um, this is sort of like a, a really critical piece to the approach, to a harm reduction approach to treating addiction and treating specifically the opiate crisis. What I tell people all the time, including my own relatives, is um, you can't um, help anybody recover if they're dead. So to you know to help people actually have an opportunity to right. turn turn the table, turn around, um, uh, enjoy, um, get on the path to recovery, you have to ha- actually have a living, breathing body to do that. And so that's one of the most fundamental things I think that we can do to respond to the crisis. What about? Um, let me um, let me just ask. We have one minute left. What would you say to family members who are struggling, you know, to support or to be there for somebody in their family who's addicted? I would say um, a couple of different things. I, th- these are people who I, I have family members who are addicted. So what works for me is I do things like remember that they have a disease and they're not an addict. Remember that they that they suffer from some condition and that the person that you love is still there. I would remember do things like um, <clears throat> you know do things to try and take care of yourself so that you can remain spiritually and emotionally fortified yourself and psychologically fortified. Um, you know. Um, Call um, any number of um, websites or phone numbers that you can. You can try to, the state very rapidly here is going to um, do away with having to require Rule 25s, which historically for people who don't have immediate access or health insurance to get into treatment, that once that happens, people will just be able to do direct access, like show up, I need to go, you know. When people say I have a problem with addiction and I need treatment, that we should say, great, let us help you rather than say, here, it's 25 forms for you to fill out. All right. Well, that that's all the time that we have. Um, we've been speaking with Claire Wilson from the Department of Human Services and Anthony Stately from um, the Native American Community Clinic about opioid addiction. I want to repeat the website for the DHS, which is knowthedangers.com, uh, various resources on that website. Dr. Stately and Claire, thank you for being on Hidden Edges Radio. Um, I want to make sure I give a big thanks to our sponsors, the engineering firm of Michaud Cooley Erickson, the law firm of Zaylor Stout & Associates, the Pride Institute, which is a drug and alcohol residential program, and Brending Electrolysis. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug. I need to be a shout-out to uh, my producers, uh, Sam Turnberg. And we are out of time. We'll be back to you uh, next week, probably with a repeat show. Take care. Bye-bye.